Welcome to the Invest Like a Boss podcast. I'm Sam Marks. And I'm Johnny FD. We're self-made entrepreneurs who invest our own money and use modern technology to invest like a boss. Join us each week for exclusive interviews with our network of modern investors, business owners, and multimillionaires to discover new ways to invest our hard-earned cash. Hey guys, it's Johnny and welcome to episode 54 of the Invest Like a Boss podcast. Back here, Sam Marks. Johnny, good to be sitting next to you again, buddy. Another episode from Barcelona. And this week, we have on Todd Tressider of FinancialMentor.com. Yeah, his slogan is invest smart, build wealth, retire early, and live free. And I think that is what we are all about, right? Yeah, definitely. I recently heard a new term called FIRE. And it's, uh, what does it stand for? It stands for financial independence and retire early. And that's what Todd is all about. That's what we're all about. And of course, a whole generation of people trying to achieve that goal and that end. And Todd wrote an article called How Anyone Can Retire in 10 Years or Less, which is a mathematical model based on that exact science. So, and the other thing that really stuck out uh, from kind of what he teaches is instead of having the spend less, save more model that most financial bloggers or financial gurus preach, he advocates being the millionaire next door, you know, enjoying your life, uh, maybe not, you know, splurging and wasting it, but making more money and losing less of it. And that way you can retire early and still enjoy a good life. Yeah, definitely. And Todd's done a ton in finance. He's a published author. He retired at 35. He's run a hedge fund. I think we can ask him just about any question in finance. He's going to have a good answer. So I'm excited to get him on the show. Let's do it. Here's Todd. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Todd, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sam. Thanks for having me on the show. Man, Todd, since you verbally confirmed to coming on the show, I have seen your name everywhere in cyberspace. I feel like I'm almost being retargeted by, by financial mentor content, but it's not. It's just you're quoted in so many different places in the financial world. I think I was reading up one today that your new name popped up in Investopedia. So this is going to be a lot of fun. And you know, it's just really good to have you on the show. Appreciate it. Oh, thanks. I had no idea I was showing up that much, but I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> this gets bigger and bigger in the uh, in the blogosphere, I suppose. And you know, going back into some of your background and stuff, you've done so many different things in finance. I'll just name a few of them that I've personally seen. I know that you created a lot of your own wealth and became successful through investing. You retired at the age of 35. I know you've managed a hedge fund. You're a published author of at least five books that I can see. And on top of that, you teach people strategies in investing in an early retirement and have won a ton of awards on your blog. So maybe the most difficult question I can think of first is you've had so much success in this. And through reading through a lot of your material, it seems like a lot of this stuff is just following a path. Do you think that you know, anyone comes to you for coaching and help on this stuff that you can help them to become wealthy and, and achieve an early retirement? Or is there just a lot more in the details? Well, you know, the fact that people pay me for coaching is sort of a self-selection process. So I haven't had anybody that I failed with. So in terms of the coaching background, I would say, yeah, so far, everybody that's come to me, I've been able to work with. But I don't think I can generalize it to say I could work with everybody. I think that'd be disingenuous. Mm -hmm. You know, I I think really there's a cutoff. If you have to be above abject poverty, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you've got to be in a point where you can actually start saving and you can start building wealth and you have some skill and some some uh, intelligence and background. So I mean, as long as we're not dealing with psychopaths, we're not dealing with people in abject poverty. I mean, I'm talking more the extremes. The answer is yeah. So pretty much anybody listening to your podcast, I think the answer would be yeah. 
Wonderful. And I think maybe going into the second hardest question I could think of, and I promise they'll get easier from here, but why do you think so many people have problems creating wealth? If a lot of it comes down to ingredients and the and the ability just to learn and, and progress, why do you think people have so much trouble or so few people actually ach- achieve a, a level of significant wealth? Lack of clarity. Mm-hmm. Um, so in other words, it, like like you said, it's not that hard to do. Most people... You know, again, if you're above abject poverty, most people have enough money passing through their hands in their lifetime to achieve whatever financial goals they want. You know, as long as you're not, you know, not trying to get rich in three years or something, mm-hmm. right? Um, as long as your goals are reasonable, most people have the ability to do it, but they lack clarity in how to do it. They lack the knowledge of the exact systems. They lack, they don't understand like how you connect your daily life activities to your personal finances to uh, produce the outcome. So they don't understand the process orientation involved in it. They don't have the principles, the knowledge. So it, it, it really comes down to an awareness thing, you know, awareness of connecting the goal, the focus on long-term versus short-term outcome. A lot of people, they're just focused on the here and now, the day, you mm-hmm. know, and they don't have like a longer-term perspective and how today's small decisions impact and compound into something very material and significant 10, 20, 30 years from now. And, and so it's just, again, it's awareness, you know, right. awareness and knowledge and, and skill, but it's not hard to do. Yeah. It's not hard to do. I mean, cool. I'm teaching people and it works, you know, it's just like, I don't understand for a goal that valuable, why people don't do it. It's never made sense to me. That's part of what drives me in this business. Yeah. Just fully commit to it. Right. Well, you don't even have to fully commit. You just have to commit enough to make it a priority to make it happen. Mm-hmm. It's not like. You know, like there's some of these guys out there that are saying, oh, you know, like it's 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 everything and you got to like drive it. And most of these guys, once they get there, I've had interviews, you know, because I have my own podcast as well. I've had interviews with people and they'll say like, yeah, I think one of my regrets is I played it too aggressive. Mm. You know, and I've been on interviews with other uh, financial independence podcasts. And that's a theme that comes through. Like in hindsight, they'll go, you know, I didn't have to be I didn't have to be so tight and push it so hard that to be financially independent at 35, it could happen at 40, it would have been just fine. And I could add a little more fun along the way. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I think a lot of people, a lot of people I know on, on this podcast, and a lot of people in our peer group, no one wants to, re- you know, get wealthy when they're older, they will want to do it when they're young and can really go out and kind of celebrate their independence. So everyone's trying to, everyone's trying to find a shortcut. And in trying to find that shortcut, I think people make a lot of mistakes. And like you said, lose clarity. Yeah. And I don't have a problem with that too. I mean, I quote unquote retired at 35, right? But the difference is I'm looking at it from a 20 years since perspective, right? I'm 55 now. And what I can tell you is that there's kind of this myth, like when I get there, you know, like what is getting there? Or once I achieve financial, then I'll do these things once I'm financially independent. And then like how much is enough to retire? There's like a lot of kind of myths that float around the space. And really what you're trying to do in a nutshell, is you're trying to get the freedom to lead the life you want to leave, mm-hmm. lead, not leave. Right. You're trying to lead the life you want to <laughs> leave, right? And so it's like it doesn't take a mint to do it, and you don't have to get such a nest egg that you never have to make another dime again. There's other ways of approaching it to get the freedom you want, get the creativity you want, and because really in the end it's about pursuing a fulfilling life. Right. And so there's a lot of different ways to go about it. And what I see a lot of people do is they go the hardcore frugality route which is not my cup of tea. And I have no problem with it. Mathematically, it's perfectly valid, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the way these guys go about it with the hardcore frugality is absolutely valid what they're doing. So no, no beef with it whatsoever, but it's not everybody's cup of tea. 
And so there's other ways to go about it. There's other angles and they're all equally valid. It's just a matter of finding the one that fits you. So the article that you wrote was titled how any, well, you wrote a ton of articles. One that called our eye was called how anyone can retire in 10 years or less. And I know you're a math guy. And this is a conversation that we've had with our group pretty regularly. And there's, you know, within our listeners, there's all different types of investors. There's, of course, the invest in yourself, do it yourself through entrepreneurship. And then there's the much more traditional ones. And I think, you know, my peer group grew up with the traditional advice of whether it's from a parent or an advisor or, or someone we look up to that, you know, go into the uh, go into the corporate world, save 10% for 30 years, and that's going to grow at 8% and you're going to be a millionaire. And, you know, your article statistically proves that, that there's, there are all types of different models and ways that you can put money away, grow it and retire on that. And I think that for, you know, we grew up just wondering how practical is that, right? 30, how, how practical is it that someone can kind of stick to a plan for 30 years? And I know your article says 10 years and, and there's the mathematical model to support that. I just wonder in your experience of all the people that you've seen, you know, is it really easy for people to create a plan like this to work, put money away and to stick to that plan for a really long duration, 30 years? I mean, people might not be alive in 30 years when they put that, that plan into place, right? Well, is it easy? No. Is it doable? Yes. Mm -hmm. Is the goal worth it? Easily. Um, so, you know, I have a, I have a course, uh, it's the only course that's available right now. I'm building out the seven steps to seven figures, uh, coaching curriculum, right? So like, I don't accept coaching clients anymore. I'm, I'm trying to put Todd in a box and I'm moving everything into courses because I've broken it all down to processes now. So I'm trying to make it so it's a scalable business model as well as I can deliver the knowledge at a cheaper price point than coaching. Coaching just got prohibitively expensive for most right. people. Yeah. Um, so anyway, the one course that's publicly available now is the one you just asked about, which is how to design your wealth plan, how to design your life so it results in wealth. So it's all about wealth planning. That's totally different from how most people think about financial planning. And so the answer is, yeah, I mean, I put it in a course. It's totally doable. Will you hammer that course out in one weekend? No, it's not that easy, you know, and there's a correct and adjust process as you implement going forward. But it's very doable and it's very worth doing and it's well within the reach of anybody, you know, mm -hmm. who's, you know, who think who's seriously taking the goal, you know, it's, it's, so it's not that hard, but I don't want to run around and use the term easy. That doesn't quite feel right either. It's just, it's mm -hmm. doable. Right. You know, or as Marie Forleo would say, it's figure outable. I like it. Uh, Johnny, my co-host, the first time he mentioned kind of this, Johnny actually sort of lives in extreme frugality. Um, I'm not sure what the the spending limit would be per that monthly, but you know, he's in the $2,000 a month range living out in Southeast Asia and, you know, lives a really nice lifestyle. And I don't, so when you achieved your, your financial success and retired at 35, you didn't do it necessarily th through frugality, right? You took the opposite approach, which was to increase your, your income to a level where you could still live a life, life lifestyle, but still put significant money away each month. Yeah. So, Let's take that article you mentioned, how, to, how anyone can retire in 10 years or less, right? In a nutshell, what it says is there's a direct relationship between your percentage savings. And this is using the traditional model, by the way. There's, you know, I teach different models, right? So this is only referring to the traditional model. There's also an advanced model using other asset classes. But using traditional asset classes, conventional asset allocation portfolio or a stock portfolio, you can retire in 10 years or less. And what it does is it shows the relationship between your percentage savings of your income, and so the higher percentage savings you have of your income, 
the the quicker you will be financially independent. And so there's two ways to do it, right? You can either spend a tiny fraction of it and make a normal income, or you can make a really big income and spend a bit more, right? Mm -hmm. Either way, the math is the same. You're spending a tiny percent of that income. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I went for the high income route. I would just as soon figure out how to make the high income and lead a comfortable life. So like I wasn't suffering, but I wasn't being stupid either. Like mm -hmm. I you know, when I did this, I lived one block from Lake Tahoe, which, you know, before the we started rolling here, you were sharing that you'd been up there. I was a, I was basically a ski bum who worked New York hours as a hedge fund manager. And so I was skiing the afternoons most of the days. And during uh, the summer, I'd play beach volleyball and mountain bike. And I'm hanging out with all my ski bum friends, right? Because I was in my late 20s and 30s and just having a great time. So it's not like I was suffering. But I also had a really nice condo, um, you know, about a block from the water and uh, paid for truck and a tournament ski boat and led a really comfortable life. Man, you're making me so envious right now. I want to get back on a plane and fly out to Tahoe for the summer. It was great. I mean, it was a great lifestyle for that time period. I didn't have kids. I had a great girlfriend who became my wife. And um, I was very fortunate, you know. Now, granted, I worked my ass off, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, the business didn't start that way. I started out. That hedge fund started out, I was working with the guy. He didn't really know me. He was kind of getting it going. And I was a $500 draw a month against commission on growth of the business. And I was out trying to sell. And I was like a zitty face kid meeting with these, uh, you know, CFOs of small corporations and stuff where they had good pension assets, but not enough to attract the big name managers. Mm -hmm. So I'm out going there. I'm a zitty face kid with this totally unconventional approach to asset management, you know, bucking my head against the wall, <laughs> making basically nothing. And, you know, eventually I became so valuable, we realized I should be doing the research work. Um, I've got a really quantitative kind of engineering mind, which you'll probably hear come through the interview. And so we pretty quickly found out that my gift was in the research side and in the portfolio management side. And so we switched roles. And as soon as we did that, the business took off. We put the gray haired guy out front. And we put kind of the the avant-garde kid that nobody would believe was really that good, put me in the back room, and the business just took off. We never had a down year. Wow. I, let me correct. We had one year where the portfolio made a little bit less than the expenses mm -hmm. and the management fees. And so the investors saw a fraction of 1% loss. And what caused that year was um, we had uh, one major system completely blow up. It was a research failure on my part. And so one major system completely blew up, but everything else made money. And so the portfolio itself still made money despite a massive screw up. But yet the the fee structure turned it slightly down that year, like a fraction of 1%. That was our absolute worst year. So were you able to do all this from Tahoe back then? Yeah. Yeah. I did that all living in Lake Tahoe, living a ski bum life. Dang. That's amazing. What year was that, Tahoe, if you don't mind me asking? Well, I started from another resort community called Sea Ranch, California. That's where we that's where the guy that started the hedge fund lived. And I was working with him for a few years. But the problem with that place, I was young buck. Right. So mm -hmm. I was like dating people's grandchildren, you know, as they came up to visit. It was horrible. <laughs> and so um, I just told him, I said, I, I either have to leave or we have to figure out how I can work remotely. And he's like, dude, take your work with you. And so I went down to Los Angeles and went wild down there for a few years because um, I'd gone to UCLA before. Mm -hmm. And so. Um, had a great time down in LA for a couple years and then just said, I mean, it's kind of a funny story, but basically one day I just turned to my girlfriend and she was like going nuts on me in a traffic jam in, in LA, just classic scene, right? Yep, classic. And I just turned to her and I said, I'm moving. 
<laughs> like out of nowhere. Going and, back to Tahoe. And she goes, what do you mean you're moving? Like this, I mean, she was just screaming and like all upset about life in LA and everything. And I just literally said, I'm moving. Like I just made up my mind right there on the spot. And she said, where? And I go, Lake Tahoe. She goes, when? Next weekend. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's exactly what I did. I was uh, I was in San Diego, LA for about three weeks and then Tahoe for s about uh, five, six weeks and then had to go back to LA, San Diego afterwards. And I was just like, I don't see how people can do that. If if you have the ability to work remote and, and with the internet, I can't see how you would choose living in amongst people and all the traffic versus in a, a wonderful place like Tahoe. But well, that's that's another podcast episode. <laughs> yeah, well, and there's one more thing in there, which is I lived on the Nevada side of the lake. So I established Nevada residency. Yeah, and huge. so, yeah, I was living on less than what I would have thrown at the state of California in taxes. Mm -hmm. You know, so, I mean, it was a no brainer decision. I mean, quality of life jumped up and taxes went down and I was kind of done with the crazy life in LA. Yeah. That always amazed me because where I stayed in Tahoe is literally right on the state line. And I'm like, I can't believe people wouldn't just jump 10 feet to the other side and establish, you know, have your house there. You're so close, just, you know, do it. But as yeah, look at the real estate values and you'll yeah, understand. Why. Exactly. There you go. Uh, so just another bit on the article. So frugality, I think this is a really good point because so many people are just overspending, but they don't realize it because they're caught up in the system. They're caught up in the American lifestyle and they have the car and everything else uh, or two cars and everything else. Where do you see in your experience that the average person tends to waste money, whether it be, you know, on luxury things or just kind of an everyday thing? Do you, do you always see commonalities and where people seem to be spending too much money and could probably save and put it to better use? Well, it's it's unlimited. But the way the math works is that you always start with your biggest expenses first, mm -hmm. right? So you look at your big expenses, they're taxes, housing, and, and transportation, right? Mm -hmm. And so you can make your biggest dent by going to your biggest numbers first. That's just, you know, a mathematical truth, right? Right. In terms of how people blow money, it's it depends on the individual. Um, but what I want to do in that answer is uh, redirect it a little bit because mm – -hmm. Where you're at with it is you're looking at the traditional model, right? There's an implied assumption in your question, which is it's all about savings and frugality, right? And so what I do is I've dubbed the traditional model the, sa the save more, spend less model. And that's what you're talking about here is how to spend less, how to, how to live more frugally, all that. And, you know, that's been taught ad nauseum on the internet. There's a bunch of, you know, Johnny Come Lately frugality blogs out there and early retirement blogs, and they're all following the exact same formula, right? Which mm -hmm. is how to get your expenses way down. And because financial independence, the math of financial independence is your assets are a multiple of your spending, right? So if you get your, your spending way down, then it's pretty darn easy to become financially independent fast. But the problem with that is now your financial independence is defined at a very frugal level and you're always bound by that. Otherwise, you lose your independence. Mm -hmm. Are you following me? Yeah, I'm following. I like it. Okay. Yeah. So there's another angle on this, which I teach. It's, it's what I call the advanced planning framework. Again, it's all in that step three course that I was telling you about. And so the advanced planning framework is different. It uses different asset classes. It uses totally different strategies and it, it breaks open the math of how wealth works. The equation becomes more dynamic. You don't have certain boundaries in the equation like you do with the traditional model. And so that, you know, that one uses, it focuses on real estate and the business entrepreneurship asset class. And what I call that is I call that the make more, lose less model. Hmm. Okay. So as, as contrasted with the spend, spend less, save more, 
This is the make more, lose less model. Okay. And it, it's built on an entirely different set of mathematics about how you achieve wealth and financial independence. So anyway, where I come from that's unique in my message is I don't have a big right wrong. Like, you know, if a guy wants to go out, live in Thailand and be single forever and keep his expenses down to 2000 a month or 1500 a month or whatever the number is and define that as freedom, then great. More power to you, right? Mm-hmm. It's not my cup of tea. And for people that that's not exactly fits their life, there are other models. And I just want to make sure that that's clear to everybody listening. Yeah, wonderful. I was told once by a really successful guy that had lived all different types of lifestyles from the single bachelor to the married with kids. And he told me that he has never seen somebody that's able to spend as as a single person that you can't really spend more than a hundred thousand dollars a year. You can blow a lot more money, but you can't really spend more than a hundred thousand a year because there's only so many dinners you can have. You have a, a nice apartment, you know, you live your lifestyle, but to spend any more than that would just really be blowing it. Do you, kind of carry that, that same perspective or do you have maybe a different number in your head? I know you've lived lots of different, you know, wealth levels. Yeah. If you're defining it as a single male and your goal is, you know, freedom and independence. Yeah. That would be an incredibly frivolous number actually in my book. Mm-hmm. You know, again, I don't, I don't have lavish needs. I never have. Right. That was why I could, I mean, I remember when I was making really good money in the hedge fund living in Tahoe and I was saving most of it, you know, I'm talking most of it, like 70, 80%. Right. Mm-hmm. And And I remember my mom taking me to task, you know, I've told this story before, you know, why don't you go get yourself a Corvette, you know, because I had like a four wheel drive truck. What else are you going to have when you live in Tahoe, a four wheel drive Toyota (laughs) truck? It's perfect. Subaru. Right. Yeah. Why would I want anything else but a Subaru or a four wheel drive Toyota truck? They're the perfect car. She wanted me to get like a Corvette. I'm like, I don't want it, mom. So, well, why don't you do this? I don't want that, mom. Mm -hmm. You know, I like what I'm doing. It's all working well. Thank you very much. You know? And she wanted me to go spend it. And I was like, no, I don't want to. Like even the boat, I told you I had a tournament ski boat. I only had it for two years. I didn't like owning it. I preferred playing beach volleyball, which is, you know, I go down there on my bicycle with a volleyball in my backpack or mountain biking where I just join up with my buddies and go mountain biking. Once you have the toy, it costs you nothing and it's healthy. Snowshoeing is great too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Cross country skiing. I telemark ski, downhill ski. I mean, all that stuff's great, man. And once you have, when when you live there and you have the toys, it doesn't cost that much. Mm -hmm. Whereas a ski boat, it always costs money. Right. And it just, and it's a lot of hassle to deal with. And I just went, you know, I I coined a term, which my friends were laughing at. I said, the fun to hassle ratio isn't as good as volleyball. (laughs) That's true. Right. Absolutely. Like it comes, yeah, it comes from the investment background of risk reward, right? Mm-hmm. And they laughed at me. They looked at me like, dude, you are such a weirdo sometimes, you know? Like, how do you come up with the fun to hassle ratio to, to characterize your boat and why you're selling it? Well, Todd, I want to jump real quick into you kind of laid out at least, I've seen in your content, at least three different paths that you've laid out to financial independence. We yeah. can also call that wealth. So we just hit on one of them, which is kind of frugality and high savings with that. Is that the way you kind of term it or is there a better yeah. term for it? Okay. So yeah, that's, that's good. So it's one. And then two, the two others are real estate and entrepreneurship. And so yesterday, total coincidence, I happened to I, be, can I correct that just a yeah, little bit? I yeah, want yeah, to clarify yeah, just so people Nailed. don't get the wrong idea. Yep. Um, if you, if you, so the three, there's three asset classes is what you're referring to, mm-hmm. right? So there's three asset classes, which is business entrepreneurship, uh, direct owned real estate, not to be confused with REITs, which are paper assets. Mm-hmm. And then a traditional paper asset, um, asset allocation, diversification portfolio, which should, you know, 
again, most of these people, it'd be a low cost passive index portfolio is how most people view that, which is fine. If you're going to go the low cost passive index route, it takes one of two uh, strategies to achieve it. And that's why I want to kind of clarify. You said mm-hmm. frugality. Frugality yep. gets you there quicker using that because the reality is the returns are mathematically limited from that investment approach. That's why you have to get the expenses way down. Okay. The alternative is you could lead normal expenses, but then you have to compound it over a lifetime. Mm -hmm. So you've got one of two ways to success using a passive index portfolio. You either get your expenses way down to accelerate the journey or you burn an entire lifetime to get there. So you get old age financial independence Mm -hmm. using traditional numbers. Bingo. Thanks for clarifying that. Um, and then, and then the non-traditional assets, which would be directly owned real estate and um, and business entrepreneurship, that's a whole different math model. Right. Okay. So the math that governs how you achieve financial independence on that is totally different, and it breaks boundaries because you don't have the limitations to the compound return equation. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a different game. So I know that could be a whole episode on itself, but I just want to touch yeah. on direct real estate real quick because yesterday we were having a conversation in our group in our forum. And we were talking, I was actually complaining about physical real estate because I own physical real estate abroad and that requires a foreign corporation, foreign bank, and just endless, endless paperwork. Yeah. And everyone was basically saying, well, it, it makes sense depending, it, it's a very fast pa- uh, track to wealth if you do it correctly and depending on where you at and what your lifestyle needs are. And I just want to quote one of the, per- the people and see what your perspective is on that. I said, I think it is by far the best asset class for someone who's not yet a millionaire who wants to become one. It is by far the quickest path to a millionaire status. Once your net worth is over $2 million, it's probably much easier just to invest in, in paper assets because you can generate a six-figure income passively off of mutual funds and other paper assets without the work required. Just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Obviously, you believe in, in physical real estate as a way to, to wealth and financial independence. Well, okay. So there's a lot of subtleties in here. Uh, First of all, let me clarify. So you said that you were dealing with foreign real estate and you had all the different rules and bank accounts and all the crap you were dealing with, right? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. So are you talking about domestically owned real estate? And the question, like you, there were several things in there. First, you start with foreign real estate and then you mixed it in with different strategies for different levels of wealth. So I'm just trying to clarify what is the actual question. I think my question is where, if, if, Okay, we have all types of groups, all different types of people that are listening, wondering. Okay, I want, I want to, I want to get wealthy and financial independence in in ten years. Not a not a terribly unreasonable timeline, and they're wondering where, what steps to take. Should we start with you know frugality and saving? Should we start with real estate? Should we start with entrepreneurship? Naturally, not everybody's an entrepreneur. Maybe they can be pushed into it. Okay, so let me answer. Let me answer. That depends on the individual, their goals, their skills, the resources they bring to the equation, as well as the market environment that they're in. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let me give you an example. Um, Let's say you've got a guy who's 50 50 years old and has never saved a dime or has almost no savings to show for it and he's had a nice six-figure income his whole life. Mm -hmm. If you think this guy's suddenly going to flip on a dime and save his way to wealth in 10 years, you're kidding yourself. Mm -hmm. Right. You're just there's too many personal issues involved to make the flip that quick unless he has a sudden epiphany in his life about what's going on. Right. So he's not going to save his way to wealth or get suddenly frugal and pull it off in 10 years. Okay, Mm -hmm. so he's going to need the alternative asset classes. Let's take another one. Let's say you've got a guy going hardcore frugality and he thinks he's going to be able to apply the four percent rule over the next 15, 20 years. He's got another thing coming because 
the the market environment we're in as we record this, which is April of 2017, you're in the top what three or four percent of historical valuations um, for the stock market, and you're in um, the lowest recorded interest rate in the lowest interest rates in all of recorded history, mm-hmm. and the the amount of your safe withdrawal rate is a function of market valuations and interest rates. And so if you run a correlation study on that, which Wade Fow has done, P- PFAU, you'll see that the safe withdrawal rate is probably below what most people are calculating. So the point in that is that's a market environment you're facing for a given asset class and a given investment strategy, mm-hmm. right? And so tying that back in, let's say that you're really attached to, and I have no idea what the market conditions are in Buenos Aires. I'm just pulling that out of the top of my head, right? Mm-hmm. Let's say that you really enjoy living in Buenos Aires and the, the real estate values are just ridiculous, right? Like ridiculously good um, because there's a downturn there. I'm making all this up. I have no sure. idea what reality is. And so you'd love to own oceanfront condominiums there for, you know, 20,000 US a piece that rent for a thousand a month. Again, nonsense numbers, but you get where I'm going. Right. In a situation like that, you might be able to retire using foreign real estate and deal with the hassle of that ownership in a very short time on very low dollars because mm-hmm. the market environment is allowing that for that asset class. So what I'm trying to communicate is this is a function of your goals. That, that's why this is not, these aren't, if guys throw simple answers at you, they're doing a disservice because there's an inherent complexity. Albert Einstein was, was gave a great quote. He said, make things as simple as possible, but no simpler. Yeah. There's an inherent complexity of the equation when you truly understand how all these puzzle pieces fit together. Mm-hmm. And so you've got to fit the individual circumstances, their goals, their resources, their skills, their interests. You've got to fit that to the asset classes. There's specific characteristics to each asset class that are true. Right. And they're undeniable. And so you've got to get the characteristics, of the asset class and the market environment, in which you're investing. And you've got to fit those puzzle pieces together so they make sense. I guess that's what's fun and keeps it interesting is it's not cookie cutter that every single person has different circumstances and, and needs a different uh, solution. Correct. Yeah. Well, that's what makes it fun for me. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. I mean, I love this stuff. I'm to me. This is like real life monopoly, but with real results. You know, it's like a kid mm-hmm. playing monopoly. And it, it changes people's lives when they see how this stuff fits together. It, it's huge. I love it. And I, lo- I love the math and statistics that you apply. But it's, uh, it's something that we don't hear enough about. And it, it's, you know, numbers don't lie. So it's good to, to know that a lot of the stuff that you do is based on, on numbers and, and models. Oh, yeah. Everything I teach is based on the science of finance, but then applied to the reality of humans and how they work because we're not computers, right? Mm. So like if you look at my seven steps to seven figures curriculum, you'll see that each step, they're paired. They're paired with the finance side and the personal side. So like step one is your financial foundation, right? Which is all the basic stuff that you hear about from personal financial planning. That's all in one step. The flip side of that is your personal foundation, which is your habits and attitudes that govern whether you're creating wealth day to day or not. Right. Because there's certain habits and attitudes that lead to financial independence and there's certain habits and attitudes that destroy it. And so those two are paired, the personal foundation, the financial foundation. And then like step three, the one I said is uh, publicly available now, that one is all about your wealth plan. Mm. Right. How to design your life to result in wealth and how to do all this engineering I'm talking about in this interview. That's all covered in that course. Right. 
And so that's paired with step four, which is the personal side, which is now you got your wealth plan. How do you take massive action on that wealth plan? How do you produce massive results? Because as soon as you get the plan and you go out and you implement it, all kinds of personal crap will come up. And so you've got to have the skills to break through that. That's what step four is. So like each step has a personal and a math, a finance math side to it to pair them up. And that's the piece I had to learn as a coach. It took me years to figure that out, mm-hmm. that it's not just financial science and yet it's not woo woo either. You got to pair them up. You got to use them correctly together. So listeners, if you want more information on that, we're going to leave links in the show notes. So don't worry, you won't miss it. Todd, I just want to jump into a few listener questions. Um, you up for that? Yeah. All right. Awesome. Okay. So one question is regarding, you know, people that you've come in contact with and and coached with in the past. Listener wants to know how difficult do you think this achieving financial independence is for married people or married people with kids compared to being single? I think the, the question is basically how important is it to kind of start on these things when you're, when you're single? Oh, I think it's a lot harder when you're married with kids. You have way more expenses. You have a lot of things pulling at you. And then for me, like as your kids get older, you know, it's not up to your values to be inflicted on your children. Your children have to find their own values, right? Mm -hmm. So you may be a hardcore frugalist, your child may not. And so um, that'll create a lot of conflict in the family. Now, fortunately, my kids are money savvy. They've been walking the talk. We've done okay so far. Mm -hmm. So they're not wasteful, but they see what we do, right? So like we don't drive flashy cars, but last summer, we traveled two months through Europe as a family. Luckily, they're not of the age of drinking wine yet because that could have that set you back quite a bit. Actually, the great thing about traveling through Europe is uh, wine's included with the meal. Like we did, the, we did a 500-mile hike across the, uh, Spain in the Camino de Santiago for a month. Nice. And like every – yeah, the kids did it, right, with us. I mean it's a hardcore hike and the kids were right there every step of the way. And – as a matter of fact, my 16-year-old daughter is the one that organized it and planned it. Wow. And so, But wine comes with every meal. It's mm-hmm. like water, literally. Like if you drank the bottle of wine at your meal, they bring you a second bottle. They don't charge you. Wine yeah. is part of your meal. Beautiful. I'm actually heading to Spain next month, so I'll definitely be looking forward to that. Yeah, look up the Camino de Santiago. At least hike a part of it. Oh, we'll do, definitely. Yeah, it's really cool. Sorry, I didn't mean to set you off track there. You were talking about your family going to, to uh, Europe for – Two months. Well, what, but I'm, what, I'm saying, what I'm saying is that it's definitely harder with a family. Mm-hmm. No question about it. You're going to have a lot more expenses, a lot more going on. And, you know, if you have hardcore frugal values as a single person, it's only you. Mm-hmm. If you want if you want to do without stuff and you want to lead your life in a certain way and you want to spend more time saving money than earning it, <laughs> right, which mm-hmm. is kind of what hardcore frugalists do, right? They completely design their lives to save money. So they put as much effort into sending, saving as they do and do what it would take just to make it in the first place. And if you want to do that, cool, right? Nothing wrong with it. It's your life. You do what you want, right? But when you're married, now you got a spouse. And then when you have kids, you've got their values. It gets way tougher, like geometrically harder. Gotcha. This is two different questions, but they're sorted in the same class. So I'll just ask them together. One listener wants to know, would you ever recommend robo-advisors like Wealthfront or Betterment to people that you're coaching? And the other question was similar. It was on real estate crowdfunding. Do you believe in those as a platform for investing? Uh, let's take them one at a time. Okay. Um, so I, I don't disrecommend robo-advisors and I don't recommend them. Let me explain why. The good thing about robo-advisors, if you pick the right one – because they have different fee structures, Mm -hmm. is you're honoring something that's a mathematical truth, which is uh, you want to get diversification at low or no cost, right? So you're trying to get – you want to control your fee structure. Vanguard got that totally right, and that was the basis for Vanguard's success is 
you know, fees matter. They matter a whole lot. All research supports that. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's the positive of robo advisors. Now, where I take a disagreement with that whole approach though, is I don't believe in, uh, investing done right is passive. Mathematically it works. It does have a positive expectancy, um, which is the criteria for whether it's a valid strategy or not. It has to have a positive mathematical expectancy, right? And so it's a valid investment strategy, but I would say it's not an efficient path to the goal. There, there are other ways of going about it that are more efficient. And so for that reason, the problem with robo-advisors is they don't have a risk management component that I would find acceptable. I personally cannot you know, if you're going to be a passive investor on a diversified portfolio of stocks and bonds, you've got to be willing to incur a 50% drawdown at some point, um, particularly from, you know, periods like now where we're at high market valuations and low interest rates. And frankly, I'm just not willing to do that. The, the, that's just too devastating to the mm-hmm. portfolio. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not a passive investor. I've been very clear about that in other interviews. And so for that reason, I wouldn't be pushing for that. But that doesn't make it wrong. Okay. It may fit for other people. And it's certainly a good starting point. It allows you to focus on your personal finances, your savings rate, you know, maybe working on other asset classes and doing that in the background. Or, I mean, there are some advantages to it. Mm -hmm. So it can be, it can be workable. Cool. So that was a long winded answer, but I'm, I'm trying to point out that it depends on the situation, you know, beautiful. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And the second part of that question was real estate crowdfunding. Are you, are you a, a believer or a promoter of these types of vehicles for? Well, first of all, I'm not a promoter of them at all. <laughs> okay. Right. Um, you know, I can't, I can't go, um, wipe out an entire, uh, area of investment. Mm-hmm. I will say this, that, um, I would be aware of any methodology that tries to make real estate easy for you. You know, a lot of people, they quote unquote, want real estate, but they don't want the hassles of owning real estate. Like me. Yeah. Just yeah, direct ownership. Right. So they're always looking for solutions, right? So it could be a crowdfunding. It could be syndication. My experience more is more on the syndication side than the crowdfunding. If you can find somebody that's a legitimate syndicator that is adding value in excess of costs, then fine. The problem I've seen is most of the syndicators are not doing that. They're just trying to leverage up other people's money on marginal deals. Yeah. So you've got to know what you're doing. You've got to know enough to know what's a good deal and what's not. It's not simple enough just to hand your money over passively. You've got to be able to analyze that thing and make sure that the guy organizing is is delivering more value than he took. So I will give an example. I syndicated a deal myself one point. But everybody that invested in that deal doubled their money at the closing table. I was actually stupid to syndicate it. I should have just used my own money rather, but I, I was all captured in leverage, right? I wanted to try doing a deal for no money, mm-hmm. you know? So like I got 10 apartment units for absolutely nothing out of my pocket just by organizing and finance, organizing the financing and organizing the deal and the investors and everything. Well, that's incredible. So in that regard, it was a, <laughs> yeah, it was a cool experiment, but it was stupid because I, I could have had a million dollars in equity in my pocket if I had just bought the thing myself, Yeah, you know? So it was actually, it was kind of dumb. Wow. Good story though. Well, it's an example of somebody giving that, uh, adding more value than they took, right? Mm-hmm. In that case, that was a good deal for the investors, and they walked away with equity at the closing table. Uh, those are rare. Gotcha. Well, I think I like really what you said about making it too easy. And I think it's such a new uh, – robo-advisors are a little bit more – defined and we understand them more. I think a lot there's there, I was looking the other day and there's over a hundred equity, uh, not equity, sorry, real estate crowdfunding sites available. And there's just new ones popping up all the time. So it's, it's almost, it's kind of scary in a way. And I think, uh, you know, I think 
a lot of them are performing well right now, but as more and more deals go through them and more and more kind of hot money Ooh, goes, goes they're in performing, a, they're performing well because it's a bull market. In real there we estate. go. Exactly. Well, said. Yeah. yeah, there's a state, there's a statement in investing. You don't know who's standing naked until the tide goes out. There it is. Well said. Okay. Yeah. And so the track record's way too short to know. I would even apply that to peer to peer lending. There's mm-hmm. the track record's way too short on peer to peer lending. We have not had, and I, I have a very controversial post on my site about that, which is just that, you know, my contention is we haven't had a market environment where the economy went down and stayed down long enough to really test peer-to-peer lending yeah. and, and what the default rates will be in a prolonged downturn. Every downturn we've had has been immediately, you know, spiked right back up. Yeah. Yeah, I agree totally. A lot of those unsecured loans are going to be written off. A lot of them already are being written off, but a lot more will be. Let's just say I'm not going to forecast it, yeah. but I think the risk is there, and I don't think the risk is built into the the returns. Nice. Well articulated. Uh, so one more listener question before we summarize, Todd, and that is, this one is actually very interesting to me as well, is what problems do you find in people once they've achieved significant wealth, aka retired multimillionaires? Well, first of all, is the, the, the biggest problem is just becoming retired. In other words, for most of them, you know, they're very career oriented. That's how they built it. And they're trying to make that transition to retirement. They're trying to decide what is a fulfilling life for them. Um, most of the people that pull that off um, have basically sacrificed a major chunk of their life and their being in their dreams in order to achieve their career goals, mm-hmm. you know, and they're parental goals and whatever. And they've been at it for 20, 30 years or, you know, and, and so as a result, they don't, they've lost touch with who they are, what their dreams are, what they want to do with the remainder of their life, those kinds of things. You know, you're dealing with a crowd that's younger and is still in touch with that. And they're trying to achieve financial independence because they want to live those dreams. Mm-hmm. When, you know, I'm, Often when I'm coaching, I'll be dealing with a crowd where they've achieved that. Like your, your premise, your question is they're already at it, like three and a half million or something. Mm-hmm. That would be somebody who's been at it a little while. And so it's a different set of problems. I, did, did that answer your question? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's, you know, we don't get to see too many people that have re- reached that level of success, but I know that, you know, there's a lot of people out there that do and they think, uh, once they get to the mountaintop, it's this beautiful, uh, scenic place to be, but there's always a, a bag of problems on the other side awaiting for you if you're not prepared for it and, and, um, don't know how to cope with, with, uh, you know, that level of success. So great to hear it from you. Here's the funny thing. Like my kids went to a private school, right? Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot of rich parents there. And so I, I get, I got to watch, um, various parents when the companies would get bought out or they'd become financially independent. And I can't tell you how many went into turmoil within a year of the what we'll call the liquidity event and the reason for that is they weren't really prepared for it they didn't really have a vision on the other side and having that spare time just a lot of stuff comes up you know life is actually in some ways easier when your life is predefined by the structure that we're given you know the workaday world where you have to work you have to make money you have to report to people you know you've got this defined purpose um, a lot of people don't understand that uh, the dark side of financial independence, I'm not, dark side is a bit overzealous or, you know, a bit grabby title or whatever. But the the unknown side of financial independence is that suddenly, you know, you have no excuses for your unhappiness and you have no no excuses for almost anything. Like you can create whatever you want with your life at that point. And that's that's a serious responsibility. 
And people don't realize that, that they almost don't have responsibility for their lives when they're working day to day because it's predefined. Hmm. When you're free, you're suddenly responsible for your life. You're suddenly realize that you no longer have excuses for anything. You're responsible for everything. Yeah. Deep stuff for sure. And something for everybody to think about as they go through their own trials and, and efforts to reach that financial independence, know that what you're looking to do and, and what the goals are. And let me cap that off with, it's a privilege. In other words, yeah, I make it sound dark. I make it sound serious because it is, right? It really yeah. throws people for a wrinkle. But recognize you're in that rare 1% of 1% or whatever it is that actually pulls it off. Mm -hmm. And the reason it's so unknown and so little talked about is because very few people get there. So you get to take your life to a whole new level and that's a privilege. And so it's a really cool go to go for, but I'm, I'm not going to mask it over. It can, it can lead to troubles too. And you have to be prepared for it. And so that's why I'm sharing it. Love it. Todd, shameless plug time. You have some amazing content out there and material. Where's a good place for listeners to first check out, you know, your blog and you mentioned the seven steps. Is that a good, is that a good place? Well, no, I think people, you know, should build a relationship first. I, I don't expect people to just arrive to the site and throw money at me unless they want to. Mm -hmm. Um, so you know, come to the site. I don't think we mentioned the site, the whole interview. It's financialmentor.com. That's financialmentor.com, all one word. Um, and that's that's where I have everything. So I have one of the largest collections of financial calculators on the internet. They're all free. Um, again, because there's so much of this that's math and a lot of people are intimidated by math. And so the calculators do it all for you. Um, I have over a thousand printed pages of educational content, you know, so you could spend a lot of time just learning for free. If you subscribe, um, to the updates, you know, the newsletter that gives the updates when I post new material, uh, you get a free book, 18 essential lessons from a self-made millionaire. You also get a free course. It's called, um, 52 weeks to financial freedom and no, you won't get rich quick, but it'll go through the structure. It'll give you a big overview of the seven steps, seven figure structure, which is the structure everybody goes through that I developed as a part of, you know, coaching 15 years, uh, people on this stuff. I kind of broke it down to a step-by-step -step structure and I mapped it all out in this 52 weeks course. So you get that overview for nothing. Um, and again, it's just to build relationship and people can decide if they like what's being shared or not. Um, and if you want the step three course, which is the wealth planning course and it talks about a lot of stuff we talked about here, but it goes into much more detail and makes it actionable. Uh, that course is publicly available right now. And that's the only one that is the other seven steps. I still have to build out. Very good stuff. Well, you won't get rich quick, but you might just retire in 10 years or less. Todd, it's been a lot of fun, really wonderful to have you on, share your amazing knowledge and experience. And man, I hope, I hope you keep producing all your content and teaching for a very long time. I know it's helping a lot of people. So appreciate it. Hey, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me on the show, Sam. It was good talking with you. Absolutely. We'll catch you next time. Another super interesting episode, and I am definitely envious that he lives in Tahoe because it sounds more and more amazing. It's definitely a good spot. And we didn't discuss the article per se so much in detail, but I would really, really encourage every listener to take a look at that article because it's got some great calculators in there. And it's something that we've discussed in the Boss Lounge before is there a mathematical model to retire? How much do you have to save? You know, how, how much, how much can you spend? Todd's got probably the biggest collection of financial calculators I've ever seen anywhere on his site. So check out this article. There's calculator there. You can plug in your income. You can plug in your savings rate. You can plug in like 30 different variables on what your goals are and, and different financial metrics. And it's going to tell you kind of how to get to this, but. Johnny, this is really interesting because you're almost, you are living proof that this model 
with some different types of inputs works. Yeah, definitely. So if you guys aren't familiar with the model um, or the blog article, it's called How Anyone Can Retire in 10 Years or Less. We'll have a link to it in the show notes uh, of Invest Like a Boss episode 52. But basically what it is, is it's a, a situation where you're like, okay, if I if that is what I really want, I can live a frugal life for, let's say, the next 10 years and save 70% of my income by living kind of cheaply and be able to live the, you know, pretty much the rest of my life after that. Uh, that's kind of what I did, I guess, but more kind of half of it was by accident. Half of it was on purpose. Um, and what I like about, you know, kind of what he said was you can still live a good life. You don't have to backpack and live in the cheapest possible apartment in, in Chiang Mai to be able to do this as long as you increase your income and then not lose money and, and do things to, to not lose money. I, I think that was kind of one of the biggest takes, takes, uh, takeaways. It was instead of just spending less and saving more money, make more money and then lose less. And that way you automatically save more. And that's exactly what you did, right? You obviously have the ability to live frug- frugally. I think that's a great way to live life anyways, not wasting money, but you didn't just make, you know, $20,000 a year for 15 years and save, you made outpaced returns for three or four or five years and also spent a little bit and achieved a, a very good level of, of wealth and success within that time frame. Todd did the same. Instead of living a really frugal lifestyle, he just upped his game, leveled up, made outpaced returns and was able to do this in a relatively short time. So I think the message is awesome. Again, check out the calculations in there because no matter where you are, if you're making $10,000 a year or $500,000 or a million, there's calculator for you to let you know where you can get by basically inputting different parts and, and adjusting your lifestyle around it. Yeah, definitely. And if you guys are thinking like, oh, I don't know how to make more money, take a listen to some of the older uh, investor, um, Investing Boss episodes, mainly the, the zero to one episodes. Uh, so we had Crush uh, with Bryce Leo. We had on The Landlord. We had my zero to one episode, um, the how to, I think it was called how to 200 extra returns. Uh, also, take a listen to Chubb Like a Boss podcast where we have entrepreneurs that I talk about it every week. But either way, this was an interesting episode. What were some of your biggest takeaways from it? I thought it, what he said about real estate crowdfunding was really interesting because we've been, we've been pounding real estate crowdfunding. It's a super interesting topic. It's on everybody's mind. Everyone's looking for a way to get into real estate and a lot of our listeners are, are tech savvy. So it just, it makes sense. And what he said was basically be wary of anything that's too easy, right? And you really have to know how to analyze the deals. And this is, this is a lot different than my strategy. I've obviously lost money in, in real estate investing before. And when I look at these crowdfunding platforms, it looks too easy to me. And I just end up probably throwing darts. But you really need to analyze the deals, right? Just like if you're going to go and buy a real piece of property, you do due diligence on it. You'd have someone inspect the place. You need to be able to know how to, to analyze the financials and to do DD on the sponsors and not just take the platform, uh, you know, put the, your entire faith in the platform. Yeah, I definitely agree, especially because right now when the market is going up as a whole, any monkey can throw darts and have a positive return. So by us, you know, just blindly picking deals, no, you know, most likely we're going to be making money from it and it's going to seem great. So we're going to keep doing it. I think the only, the only kind of safety nets that we have right now is 
the fact that we diversified. So instead of just, you know, getting to deals with even 10 grand uh, or more, just having a couple of deals, we're having a bunch of deals at a thousand dollars or sometimes even less. And that way it automatically gives us some diversity. So I do definitely agree that it is way better. Uh, it is recommended that you look into in each individual deal and choose if you're going to do it or not. Uh, but I, I don't want to say people like you and you and I that don't want to d- dive in deep should just not invest in things like Pier Street. I still think it's okay to do because it is vetted. It, it does have um, at least some kind of backup plan where it's real estate backed and we're so diversified. Most likely we're okay, but obviously Todd is right when he says it would be way better if we actually looked into each individual deal. Yeah. I mean, here's an idea. Why doesn't someone start a fund that takes like 1% but analyzes all these deals and invests in cross, across multiple platforms? In fact, you had asked me in the, the last episode on CrowdStreet, why not just, if I'm going just for 8 or 9%, why not just put it all you know through PeerStreet? And part of me still feels like it makes sense to kind of diversify across platforms because I have so much in Pure Street right now, but I don't know. You know, this is something that we need to continue to dive into and dig deep into because we continue to unearth more and more tips and, and strategies. Uh, one other thing that was kind of a cool takeaway and a topic that we've talked about a lot lately is Todd is much more of an active investor. And we initially started the podcast talking about so many passive investing strategies through Vanguard and Robo Advisors. Of course, we covered Betterment and um, and Wealthfront, and then we had it on Phil Town, and that kind of like shook up our world. Like, wow, maybe we really need to be trying more of an active strategy. And uh, it's definitely something I'm still interested in. One one th- thought, uh, one nugget that I thought was pretty cool that Todd said was he wasn't opposed to Robo Advisors. You just, if you're going to put your money in robo advisors for the long term, you have to be prepared to take a 50% drawdown at some point, which is, is true. And that's, that's obviously very devastating. But one of the great things about robo advisors for people like you and I that are, are very busy with other initiatives that we're working on is that it frees up bandwidth. So if we don't want to take the active approach, we want to take the passive approach and focus on things that we can make a, you know, a 200 times return on, which are our own entrepreneurial things, then it makes sense for us. Yeah, I definitely agree. And now that I'm, somewhat retired and I'm not actively bringing in more money, it feels weird having any kind of drawdown, even if it's like, even though my passive income is still bringing in money, just because I'm not actively working and bringing in new deals and I'm not going to see it grow, even like just going out and buying uh, a new pair of hiking boots and this backpack for this big trek across Ireland we're going to do in a few weeks, I was thinking like, I need to I need to get the best value ones. I don't want to spend too much. And I was literally like, you know, looking at the difference between a few, you know, euros, like five euros here, five dollars, six dollars here and there, because I'm like, nope, I, I got to save some money. And and it just doesn't feel good to ever see money go down. It never feels good to see money go down. I don't care what wealth level you're at. If you're worth a hundred million dollars and your wealth level is going down, you feel like you're a depreciating stock. You feel like your value in the world's going down. And I've heard that from people of all wealth levels. I certainly feel that. I know you feel that. I mean, you're basically like a, uh, a baby boomer, like going into a retirement home and like, like you're full on retirement, you know? And, um, 
it's just, uh, it, it's a funny thing, like money and psychology. That's another thing that we've talked about. But yeah, I'm interested to get more of your take as you proceed. I mean, you're, you're technically retired. I know we're going to do an episode on retirement pretty soon. We'll cover this stuff in more detail. But um, I know being around you and you being around me a lot the last week, like just seeing our different lifestyles, you seem a lot more retired than me. Like I feel like I'm totally a slave to work and stuff still, um, but you're running around with a, a happy face everywhere. But for another episode to dive in deep. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, it's it's a good life, you know, I, and I, I recommend trying out retirement for anybody just to see if you don't like it. I, I have a feeling that I'll do this for a few months and most likely I'll, I'll be like, okay, that, that was cool. Let me, let me get back to work. Um, but we'll, we'll, well, I guess we'll find out, right? Yeah. We'll find out. Definitely. And, and for all those that are on their way to success and wealth, we wish you luck. Uh, one other last bit, just as a takeaway from the episode, success is a beautiful thing. But if you're not prepared for it and you get there, there can be a dark side to it. And, and Todd mentioned that in, that in that episode. That's been mentioned in previous episodes. I know we have a couple episodes lined up that are more on that topic. So of course, on this podcast, we want to focus on building wealth and creating success for ourselves. But there is there can be a dark side if you don't plan for it. So you need to have goals of why you want to get to that level and what you're going to do once you get to that level. Yeah, I definitely agree. And the other big takeaway that I got from Todd that I really liked was his fun to hassle ratio, mm-hmm. where I actually think think of it all the time as well. I actually kind of think of it as like the awesome to annoying ratio, <laughs> where even like you know with with countries or cities I'm in. Uh, for example, when I was in Bali, it was awesome. It was beautiful. Lots of cool things to do. You know, good weather, beautiful sights you know, decent food, surfing, all this stuff. But the annoying the annoying things on it, like the difficulty of getting money out of the ATM, the high, the high likelihood of getting scammed there, having your credit card swiped, not being able to get around because they banned Uber and just all these, all these kind of negative things, lack of infrastructure, that outweighed the awesome factor. Yeah. Versus places like Chiang Mai, it's pretty awesome, but it's not, you know, it's not 10 out of 10 awesome because there's no beach, uh, and so, you know, I would say, let's say it's like a eight out of 10, but the annoying ratio is very low. There's almost no downsides to Chiang Mai because good infrastructure, good to get around. So to me, that kind of out tips it. And I think of this with almost kind of everything I do in life. It's a good way to look at it. I don't think there's any place in the world that's perfect. I know we're still hunting for one. Barcelona is pretty darn good, but we're going to have to learn some Spanish, my man. We'll figure it out. So hasta luego, everyone. Gracias for for listening. And thank you to everyone who's taken the time to leave these amazing five-star reviews of the podcast. You guys are the reason why we are able to do this each and every week with more and more guests. So big, big thank you. If you haven't done it yet, please, please, please open up the iTunes app uh, or you know go to the iTunes store, search for Invest Like a Boss, click on review and leave a five-star review. This week, we'd like to thank Rasha Krasha. She says, five stars. This is real. Love listening to these, the conversation style and the broader range of investing opportunities, plus just how many ways there are to make good money. Plus, they bring it back to the basics that one applies to whatever niche you are going to focus on. Thank you both for the information. Thank you, Rasha Krasha. Thank you, Rasha Krasha and everybody else that left a review this week. So if you want to enter to win a Amazon gift card for leaving a review. Just send a screenshot of the review you leave 
to uh, our email. Uh, just go to investlikeaboss.com and click on bonus and instructions will be there. And we'll see all of you guys next week. Hasta luego. Adios. Thanks for listening to the Best Like a Boss podcast. Join our mailing list at investlikeaboss.com to get exclusive access to our insider investment portfolios and our private members forum. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends and leave us a review in the iTunes store. It helps more than you know. See you guys next week.